Amen. Heavenly Father, we glorify you. We extol you because in your perfect plan, before time began, you saw fit to reveal to us something of your glory. And now as we revel in that revelation and as we take in more today by your grace, then we've understood and realized and loved so far. I pray that you would bless us and cause the seed of your word to produce fruit. We take this opportunity now to recall some of the fruit that seeds of your word have produced. So as we recount your deeds, as we give testimony to your power, I pray that you would be glorified and others would be inspired and encouraged and that we would all mutually benefit from answer to prayer, that we might continue boldly, strong, equipped, and assured that whatever you've called us to do, for your glory and name's sake, you will also provide everything we need to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning I'd like to introduce you to, if you haven't met him already, my Uncle Stanley Clark. And so if you want to come forward, he's going to share with you a brief story of how the Lord has been faithful to him of late. So I think we have everything set up. Is that good enough? Do you need a podium or anything? Okay. Good morning. Is this working? Can you hear me? I'm going to try to stand up uh, for these remarks, but you'll forgive me if I uh, sit down. I had emergency surgery in, on Tuesday to take my gallbladder out, and I probably shouldn't even be here, but I couldn't resist the opportunity to come and share a testimonial from my life. Um, we have loved living here. We love this church already, the vision that it has, uh, the people and we're just so happy to be a part of it. Um, I'm a writer and not a speaker, so I'm going to read something which I've been writing, and you'll forgive me for that, I hope. And uh, this is kind of choppy, too. It's not finished prose yet. It represents where I am, kind of a work in progress. He said, come to the edge. I said, no, I'm afraid I will fall. A second time he said, come to the edge. Again I said, no, I'm afraid I will fall. A third time he said, come to the edge. I went to the edge. He pushed me. I flew. I was born and raised in a Christian home. For the first 12 years of my life, my father was a Baptist minister in rural New York and Illinois. We lived in a parsonage next door to the church, and my whole life, from birth through young adulthood, revolved around the weekly cycle of church life. Sunday school, morning worship, evening worship, Wednesday evening prayer meeting, youth group, youth choir, revival meetings, and summer church camps. It was all consuming. My father led me to the Lord as a young child, and I made an adult confession of faith at age 12. Dad baptized me shortly after that. Eight years later, Dad performed our wedding ceremony in a Chicago suburb in 1969, 
and I became grafted into the Carlton clan. My childhood home was strict but loving, a home full of piety, daily devotions, scripture memory, prayers, and family discussions about godly living. It gave me a strong base for the rest of my life. I received my higher education from what was probably the finest Christian college in the country. I married a Christian woman and established a Christian home. Over my life, I have heard thousands of sermons and hundreds of Christian speakers. We've been active in church wherever we've lived. I've taught adult Sunday school, sung in choirs, preached, served as an elder, and played my horn. Overall, I've been blessed beyond words with a trauma-free life. I've been protected, nursed in faith, happy and successful in a 43-year professional career, which ended when I retired five months ago. I especially think of my good health. In my entire career, I only had to take two sick days. There have been aches and pains, of course, minor issues like everyone else has, but I've been spared from serious problems. On my dad's side, the odds for long life are very high. He is 96 and still going strong. My only uncle, his brother, passed away at age 95. So as you can imagine, I certainly haven't spent a lot of time thinking about my mortality. Even as I approached retirement age, I felt confident and secure. I figured I easily had another 30 years of productive life ahead of me. Intellectually, I knew that my days were finite, but my heart wasn't in it. I was on autopilot, scarcely giving a thought to the wolves outside the window. Then about a year ago, I began to have trouble swallowing. The diagnosis was swift and certain. I had adenocarcinoma, a very aggressive and deadly form of cancer in my esophagus. The C word. Suddenly, my fort felt a bit unprotected. I haven't described my mother's side of the family yet. While the Clark side was healthy and long-living, the Campbell side was cursed with cancer. Grandpa Campbell died in his early 30s of brain cancer before my mother was even born. Mom died in her 60s from ovarian cancer. My older brother is fighting for his life right now with advanced melanoma. My son had stage 4 melanoma in his early 20s and is alive today only by a miracle of God. My identical twin brother had melanoma too in his late 30s, and now it was my turn. Last spring, I began an aggressive treatment program of chemotherapy, radiation, and major surgery. I spent five weeks in the hospital, two weeks of which were in the ICU on a breathing machine. The recuperation has been very slow, and I've lost 100 pounds. To put it bluntly, I was traumatized by the experience. And as I lay in the hospital in San Francisco last summer, unable to swallow or breathe on my own. My whole life foundation seemed to be slipping away. I found myself asking questions I had never asked before. What if none of this Christianity business is true? If Jesus is my friend, why can't I feel him with me? Is there really such a thing as eternal life? What if death is the end of everything? The reality was simple. 
I was not prepared to die. I'd built my house on the sand instead of the rock. The storm was raging, and the house was about to fall. The core issues were staring me down. What is faith and doubt? Is the Bible true or false? What can I truly believe in, and on what basis? Can I trust God? Again, my head could answer all these questions because I'd been immersed in the evangelical church my entire life. So I understood the answers. The problem was in my heart, in being able to claim my faith as being real, to appropriate it to my current situation. I needed to make a critical but missing connection to restore the circuit. So in the last few months, I've been on a spiritual pilgrimage, seeking a firm foundation for my faith. I knew there was solid evidence for belief in God and his word. In other words, good reasons to be a Christian. I just had to rediscover them for myself. I did, and here are a few of the obvious ones. God is evident in nature and the created order, which is a theater of beauty and complexity. God has been clearly evident in many events in my life. These are my unique stones of remembrance, and we all have them. God is evident in the testimonies of his saints through the centuries, both in what they've experienced and how their lives have reflected a transforming presence that gave them courage and peace. And God is evident in what happens when the Spirit leaps inside me as I read a scripture or sing a hymn. But in the final analysis, the evidence simply isn't enough, and I believe God designed it to be this way. If it were enough, everyone would be a believer. Rather, we are asked to consider the evidence and then take an action, a step of faith. We are stepping off a cliff into space, essentially, and we will either fall like a rock or soar like an eagle. Of course, it wasn't just my weak and ungrounded faith at work here. The evil one is the father of lies, the author of confusion, and the source of irrational fear. And he would love to snatch us away in times of crisis and uncertainty. So any believer that isn't wearing the full armor of God is vulnerable. And looking back now, I can sense the tug of war that was taking place in the unseen world. Through this experience, I've been seeking to understand faith and doubt more fully and have come to realize there is a single crossroads that we face, one stark choice to make. Either the Bible is true or it's false. That makes the process fairly simple, really. Yes, I believe it, or no, I reject it. Joshua made the Israelites choose too. He told them, you can serve the gods of the land you're inhabiting, or you can serve the Lord. It's your call. As Jesus said to his doubters and skeptics in John 8:46, if I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The problem with rejecting biblical Christianity is that there's no other belief system that even comes close in terms of providing peace and joy, and none of them makes as much sense in explaining life's fundamental issues as the biblical narrative. Does the 6th century Arabian give you the answers you're searching for? Or any of the 25 prophets in the Quran? Maybe one of the 14 primary gods and goddesses of Hinduism 
or one of the dozens of minor gods. Perhaps an Eastern system of philosophy evolved over centuries, or a mystic who claims to have discovered eternal truth after years of self-reflection and chanting. How about believing there is no God or that everything is God? I say no to all of these. There's only one faith that claims a loving and forgiving God, Yahweh, who reveals himself not just in the grandeur of the universe or in, or in broad moral law, but in the smallest details of our daily lives. Only he orchestrates earthly events according to a predetermined narrative with a judgment day at the end of time. We don't have to be afraid of him or burn piles of money and beat ourselves in an effort to please him or light incense or chant or bow in a certain direction to be saved or to get his attention. When other followers were deserting Jesus during his ministry, he asked his disciples if they were going to leave him too. Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I've been struck at how often and how directly Jesus spoke to his followers about eternal life. He understood that we needed strong confirmation of a reality beyond the grave because we are weak and fearful by nature and terrified by the prospect of death. Consider what he said in the Gospel of John. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So I've begun to comprehend once again what is probably the most basic truth of the Christian faith. You have to believe what the Bible says, period, and trust in Christ with your whole heart. There's an old fundamentalist chorus I heard growing up. If Jesus said it, I believe it. His word cannot lie. If it's written in the Bible, I'll believe it till I die. I used to laugh at that, but I'm not laughing anymore. I guess this has been more of a confession than a testimony, hasn't it? The application is simple. I ask you to consider your own faith. Is your head knowledge about God and his word in a closed circuit with your heart? Will you be able to appropriate it in the day of trouble, which will surely come? Have you built your house on the rock so it can withstand the storm? Have you made that crossroads decision to accept his word as true and to trust him with your soul? I want to close with a story called Trip to Heaven. This is a TV show I saw as a high school student 50 years ago. I saw it one time for 30 minutes. 
I've never forgotten it. Story goes like this. There's a depressed man. He's the hero. He's in a dead-end job. He's got no joy in his life. Every day he wakes up. He walks several blocks to his factory, does his work, walks home. That's his whole life. His walk to work takes him past a travel agency. One day a small sign appears in the window. It says, trip to heaven, inquire within. He laughs it off at first, but each day as he passes the agency, he begins to gnaw at him. What is this? Eventually one day he decides to stop in and ask about how it all works. The agent explains, you have to sell everything that you have and bring us all the money on a certain day and time, and then you'll go to heaven. Well, he feels he has nothing to lose, so he agrees. He sells everything he has, and at the appointed day and time, he shows up at the travel agency with his life funds. There's about 20 people uh, in the building and an old school bus out front, and they've all done the same thing. And they're all sheepish and worried and kind of embarrassed. But there's a long trip into the countryside ahead. For several hours, they ride in this rickety bus, and it finally pulls up in an abandoned farmhouse. The driver tells them to go into the barn and wait, and then they'll go to heaven. Then he drives away. Everyone's sitting quietly in the dark barn for what seemed like hours all expecting heaven to come. It suddenly dawns on our hero. This is all a trick. We've been robbed of everything. So he stands up and he bolts out of the barn. The instant his foot hits the ground, he hears something behind him. He turns around and sees an indescribable light filling the barn. and a look of total joy on the others in the group. In a flash, it's over. Everyone has gone to heaven except him. The barn is empty. He slowly begins the long journey back to town. Hebrews 9, 27 to 28 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ having been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So there it is. I'm a stubborn person and I'm not budging. I'm going to stay in the barn until Christ takes me home. Thank you. Amen. If you would bow your head with me for a brief moment in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for what a precious gift 
that evidence, Lord, is to us this morning. Lord, I thank you. I know for myself the fruit of a confession and a testimony such as we have just heard has the power by your spirit using it to give assurance and courage to those of us who have yet to face a trial quite so deep or worry about the reality of staring death in the eyes with the confidence that our life is hid in Christ Jesus. And now, Father, as we open your word, I pray that you would add to that, add to that confidence and assurance of faith and the boldness that we hope to gain that whatever comes, our rock, Jesus Christ, is a sufficient foundation to build a Christian life upon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for sharing that, Uncle Stanley. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 24. Several times as Stanley was giving his testimony, he mentioned the narrative of Scripture. It's interesting, we didn't coordinate our two messages at all, but the Holy Spirit must have. Because Psalm 24 is just 10 verses, and I wrote in my notes this morning that it's a 10-verse celebration of the narrative of all of history. It's a 10-verse celebration of God's story of the beginning, the middle, and the end. There's a term, meta-narrative, which simply means the biggest story or the bigger picture or the ultimate perspective, the ultimate view of history, of time, of all record, of all events that God initiated at creation and that he signs and seals and delivers through the kingdom of God consummated and manifest in heaven one day. Psalm 24 is unique among the Psalms for several reasons. One of the interesting ones, secondary to Scripture, but nevertheless historically sound, as my, if my research is to be trusted, this psalm was included regularly in the liturgy of ancient Hebraic culture. So on a Lord's Day, similar to ours today, this song was often repeated. And you, I think we can get a picture why as we read it in just a few moments. These 10 verses remind us of the big picture So that whatever we might be going through on a small and difficult picture on a day-to-day basis, we can always have the discernment, if we never forget the truth, to understand where we are in light of God's ultimate purposes and to maintain hope that whatever He leads us through, He is in charge of it because He ordained the beginning and He ordained the end. He is the God of creation. He is the God of the new creation. He is the author and he is the finisher of our faith. Note the celebratory tone and the boldness of proclamation that comes through in this magnificent poem as we read. Psalm 24, verses 1 through 10, a psalm of David. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands 
and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Again, verse 9, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Ten verses proclaiming in summary form, in powerful language, in psalm, in poetry, and song, if we were to set it to music like I trust it originally was, that would remind us of the meaning of history. God ordained the beginning and is responsible for this earth and everything in it. How do we know this is true? Because he, by his creative power, owns the rights to everything. He founded it upon the seas. So we have creation at the beginning. We have the new creation at the end. The twice offered announcement of the king of glory and the twice offered fulfillment of his triumphal entry is brought to a close in verse 10. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. That is every one of the heavenly beings and of the redeemed elect who have fought the good fight, who have finished the course, who have aligned themselves with his triumphal purposes, who now worship him in part now and soon to be doing it in the fullness of glory forever and ever in all eternity. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of those hosts, those who share in the duty to echo and to emanate his glorious purposes and praises. Blessed is the lamb that is, was slain. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. He is the king of glory. He is the king of the glorious new creation when it finally arrives and we are finally caught up to our ultimate eternal and heavenly home. He is, he was, he forever will be. This is the meaning of history. The title of this message is From Glory to Glory. Consider in just 10 verses, from the glory of creation to the glory of new creation, the meaning of God-ordained history. And then take encouragement and take heart. If you find yourself in a valley and can relate to the testimony we just heard, wherever you are, even if it's the shadow of imminent death, when we remember that God has fit us and called us for a purpose in between the glory of creation and the glory of new creation... And on this grounds, we know he's authoritative and powerful. He made us in the first place. And on this grounds, we have our eternal hope. He has prepared for us a mansion in glory. We can have a rock and a foundation for our faith strong enough to endure every trial. And just as this psalm is preceded by Psalm 23, it's almost as if you can feel the gentle, caring, yes, corrective, but the faithful and loving shepherd's hook grabbing around a lost sheep 
reaching out with his sovereignty, reaching out with his creative power revealed to the mind, reaching out with the truth of his plan for every event that happens in history, reaching out into your soul, grabbing you gently and steering you away from that precipice of doubt and returning you to his loving care and his great shepherding arms. Praise the Lord. It's no accident that these three Psalms are listed right in a row, I feel, as I read Psalm 22, then 23, and 24. And just to remind you of their themes, we covered Psalm 22 in depth. It was perfect for this Easter time because it describes the pain and the anguish of our suffering Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. But that work was not just suffering, it was also conquering. It conquered death, hell, sin, and the grave, and the enemy, and all his plans and schemes for all of the redeemed. And then we find in that knowledge the great comfort of our shepherding Lord. Now we know him as, a, as the, the one who sacrificially gave his life for us. And now we know him in Psalm 23, 23 as the perfectly capable shepherd who will guide us to our home eternal. How can we not but trust a shepherd? who is able to defeat the last enemy, death itself. And now we have Psalm 24. What are we to make and how are we to live in light? And what should our confession be? And what is a great psalm to sing in light of these revealed truths? And there we find a perfect purpose for Psalm 24. To celebrate, to draw comfort from, to display boldly, to proclaim gloriously. The meta-narrative of all of history from the best vantage point that this life affords us being firmly rooted and grounded in the word of God and reading with childlike faith the announcement that the king over creation is king over the new creation. There's perhaps a two-dimensional fulfillment or use for this psalm. We've often commented in our psalm study that David was writing as writing as the lineage of Christ. So there are times when he speaks in the first person and it's difficult to distinguish between, is he talking about the Messiah or is he talking about himself? And the answer is yes, he's talking about himself, but it's a foreshadowing, it's a picture, it's a type. He's talking of the Messiah. Perhaps there was a moment in Hebrew history, when David was king, where this song was sung as he entered the gates. Lift up your heads, O gates. The king of glory is coming in. Perhaps the psalmist who wrote and celebrated with timbrel and dance upon his exploits over the Philistines said as much when he was young. There's those stories recorded. David has slain his ten thousands while Saul has slain his thousands. Imagine yourself in that very tangible moment of hope and victory as a nation united under a benevolent and powerful, capable, wise king. David, as far as human terms is concerned, we could say the greatest king in all of history, Hebrew history. As we think about this picture, because it's tangible and human, it's probably easy for us to imagine celebrating with those throngs. While David, with the chariots lined up behind him in victorious and triumphal parade, go through the streets of what would be Jerusalem, past the spot where the temple would be erected by his son, and there's people shouting and leaving their work and dropping their tools for a moment to celebrate the peace that they are sure to revel in, at least for a time, as the enemy has been vanquished by their powerful king. 
They would forget everything likely of their daily routine and pause and celebrate for a moment as the victory was won and it was tangibly in hand. Now think of the second way this psalm is fulfilled in our conquering Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Should we not have infinitely more, if we could muster it, inspiration to come every Lord's Day, just as the Hebrews used to do in anticipation of the Messiah coming to celebrate the Messiah that has come. Because we get at least, I feel, to chapter or to verse 8, who is this King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty in battle? Lift up your heads, O gates. Perhaps in verse 9, lift them up, you ancient doors, and the King of glory may come in. Perhaps that brings us about to the point where we are in the narrative of history. We have experienced, if you share in Christ's shed blood as your hope for salvation, personal victory, and also the historical victory of Christ over death, hell, and the grave. And it's just a matter of time. Just a matter of time. Where we will, when we will also manifestly experience the final verse that I take to look forward to the ultimate consummation of the kingdom of God. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts is king of glory. And we'll read at the close of this sermon, perhaps the last moment in history as we know it, when gates are lifted and a triumphal entry happens again, when Jesus Christ leads his victory parade through the streets of new Jerusalem. Just five brief points, and we won't go into them in detail. Creation, perfection, salvation, crucifixion, and consummation. Again, creation the beginning, perfection, the holiness and obedience God's, God demands, salvation, reconciliation if we fall short of that measure, crucifixion, the means by which we are saved, consummation, the fulfillment of all of history. That is the basic shape to the story of creation. That is a basic framework. You could certainly add to it a lot of details in between and amazing stories of its fulfillment and unveiling. And we will preach for the rest of our lives from the pulpit here. And we will read for the rest of our lives, Lord willing, in these pages here and add to that basic structure many, many facets to consider, to rejoice in and to add to our feeling of ecstasy and understanding. Yet it, in, at its heart, the shape or the structure, or the definite milestones of history, a child can understand. There was a perfect creation, and it was, became imperfect when sin and death un- entered in as just punishment for man's disobedience. God, in His grace now revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ, offers His salvation. The price of the cross Purchases, purchases hope for new creation. New creation we retain by faith, but we will one day experience manifestly in our experience. And there we have the shape of history. In Psalm 24, verse 1 and 2, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. 
Two points under creation. Universal, universal subjugation or total dominion. And secondly, the, excuse me, imposition of order. Or you could say institutes of glory. Everything is under God's will and command. Universal, absolute dominion. Universal subjugation. Why do we say this? And how do we know and can confidently say that the providence of God superintends everything, every creature, every event? Well, aside from the greater testimony of Scripture where we see the consequences of those who beg to differ, we have this theological truth. If God made things in the first place, everything, if He is the eternal, self-existent source of the universe, then it only stands to reason that everything is under him. Everything is under his absolute and total dominion. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell therein. This is a days, this is a your days are numbered proclamation statement to any name that is named that seeks to exalt itself above the name of Jesus Christ. Last week I was reading for my own encouragement and benefit, confessions along these lines. We were in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul declares he has a twofold calling. One is to build up the church and the second was to tear down anything that would stand in the way of the kingdom of God. These were not physical enemies, mind you. They were the arguments, the lofty opinions, the things that would exalt themselves, the thoughts that were not obedient to Christ. Anything that exalts itself by way of thought, imagination, idea, proposition, philosophy, religion, you name it, that exalts itself above the knowledge of Christ, that is not subject to Him and in obedience to Him, it is part of our calling to pray it down, to call it down, to speak it down, to speak the truth. Jesus Christ indeed is Lord. He indeed is Lord. And everything that would say otherwise will be judged in the end. He rules. He reigns. He is absolutely authoritative. He has dominion over everything that he has made. It is his by creative right. There is nothing that can stand against his authority and power. This verse 2 gives us an, an idea of the conditions and the order that he imposed on creation. Did he just do it kind of haphazardly, abstractly, spontaneously? As if an artist would just go and throw paint on a canvas and kind of get an idea as he went along and search in a haphazard way for inspiration. I'll see what hits me. No, God is not a man that he would look elsewhere for inspiration. There is nowhere else to look. Of him and through him and to him are all things, all things good proceed from him. God's order is proceeds from himself and his creation was perfect and orderly and it had an institution of holiness that governed its affairs. And we see it in the first pages of Genesis that this world that he founded, he founded it, he established it upon the seas and upon the rivers. There's poetic language here and I'm going out a little bit on a limb, but as we read in other portions of scripture, the idea of the sea 
comes forward, especially in the Psalms, and it can be uh, compared to an idea or a concept of tumultuous change, even rampant evil or destructive chaos. What I think the psalmist is getting at here, perhaps, is this. Not that tumultuous change, rampant evil, or destructive chaos are the foundation, as it were, of the creation, but indeed that He is Lord over those things. That is to say, our Lord is eternally established as Lord over everything. Even destructive forces are subordinate to His ultimate will, purposes, plan, and divine order. Additional to his thought, we can certainly to this thought, we can certainly say this: that when God formed the earth, something that would have appeared impossible, that indeed not just appear, would be fundamentally in every way impossible for any other creative power to do, to accomplish, or to conceive. He took the land and he separated it from the seas. He said to the waves, This far and no further. He apportioned, according to Isaiah 40, every molecule of dirt in every mountain range this globe over. He set the stars in motion, created the universe by the finger, by his fingers, by his hands. There's this anthropomorphic language that illustrates the intimate relationship that God has to his created order. That is, everything that he has made by original intent and design had an order and an institution from his sovereign character to emanate and to display and to share his glory. It only follows then that he requires perfection. What right does God have to ask of his creation that it would operate as he willed and intended? So when the question comes forward in this psalm in verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? It only stands then to reason. That verse 4 commands, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He who has been reordered, reconciled, redeemed, reborn, We must be born again. We are fallen. We are sinners. We no longer reflect the order of God's creation. But our every thought is indeed perverse and apart from Him until God regenerates us. That word generate right in the middle there in Genesis. You focus in on it and you realize that salvation is a recreation It's a creative work from the inside out that reunites us with God's perfection and allows the conditions to stand in God's presence and holiness to actually be fulfilled in our heart. He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. For an expansion of this idea, you could go revisit Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 22. This is kind of a poetic form of what was set forth following the law as the order and conditions for life and for blessing and prosperity and peace for the society in ancient Israel. And here is a psalm that immortalizes through poetry the same idea. You must have clean hands to stand in the presence of God and you must have a pure heart. That is, the hill of the Lord and His holy place are places 
that have conditions that must be fulfilled before you can go into his presence. There's one curious note of contrast. You might ask at first glance, if the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, then why is his abode and his presence described in verses 3 and 4 as the hill of the Lord and a holy place? Couldn't we say, and wouldn't it be right to assume, that every hill is the hill of the Lord, and this entire universe is his abode? And yea, where can I go from the presence of the Lord? As we read in other portions, even if I were to descend to hell itself, yet still his presence in one sense is felt there. So how is it that now he's described instead of universally known and universally present to specifically known and particularly present at his hill and his holy place? Well, the answer has everything to do with the narrative of history. You see, when we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, at that time prior to that sin, we had the freedom of communion with God through our covenant head parents, Adam and Eve, to enjoy of every single other tree. The presence of God was everywhere. The presence of God filled the earth and its fullness and everything in it and was there for the communion of his subjects, of his children, Adam and Eve. But things changed. When they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, now they were outside of his presence. They had experienced the spiritual alienation resulting from sin. Yes, the Lord inhabits the entire universe. Yes, the Lord is seen everywhere. But that does not change the fact that until I'm reconciled to him, I am spiritually alienated from participating in that communion and revelation in any meaningful way. It only speaks judgment and condemnation over me. It's interesting where one tree was the downfall of Adam and Eve. There's a picture of a second tree in Genesis 3.22. That's the tree of life. It was guarded by an angel with a flaming sword, lest man eat from the tree of life and then be reconciled. But as the narrative of history finally closes in its recorded chapter in this book, we read in Revelation 2-7, to them that overcome, I will grant them to eat from the tree of life. And when new creation and regeneration has taken its fullest manifest foothold in our experience, once again, and dare I say to even greater degree, we will experience the presence of God in unfettered, overflowing, and innumerable and eternal ways, even more so than Adam and Eve could appreciate as they did not know him as Redeemer. And they could not have said with any personal experience, blessed be the lamb that was slain. God demands submission by right of creation and by right of being. God demands perfection. And his holy place is that which is reserved for the criteria that would justify man to be worthy of sharing the presence of the Lord with him. The law is conditional and evidential in that way. But who, I say who, could ever fulfill it? History showed that there was only one. And he did it perfectly so. 
And you and I know him as our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where the glorious hope of salvation comes in. Creation, perfection, salvation. Verse 5. He, speaking of the man who has found favor with God, will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He will receive blessing from the Lord. And within that blessing and included in what God blesses those who are favored with is the righteousness itself that would justify them in his presence. And from the God of his salvation God, the author of life, is also also the author of salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So we are reminded that the grace of transfused righteousness comes apart from us. And the God of salvation and the God of righteousness, as Jeremiah also records in chapter 23, 5 through 6, God himself is shown to be in that designation of his name and definition, God, our righteousness, he is shown to be effective in our righteousness as sure as he is responsible for providing salvation and the free gift of his son in the first place. The grace of transfused righteousness is spoken of here. It's poetic. It tells of a future time when it would be revealed in Christ, but nevertheless, the revelation is there. By grace alone can we have clean hands outward righteousness. By grace alone can we have a pure heart, inward righteousness. That is, by Christ alone can we ascend to the hill of God, the place where he is pleased to dwell. By grace, by Christ alone can we ascend with him, be resurrected with him to stand in his holy place. The price that was paid in this regard we know is the cross of Jesus Christ. As we read in verses 7 and 8, perhaps the reason why there's a twofold, there's a twofold confession of the acclaim of this great and glorious king, perhaps we can relate it in one way to him being triumphant over sin, and in another way, he's yet to be fully revealed triumphant over history. In verses 7 and 8, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. We read of the last enemy being defeated in death itself. 1 Corinthians 15, after explaining the gospel, goes on to give us all of these promises and all of the reality of what Christ's death triumphed over and what it promises for the redeemed. The gates and the ancient doors were lifted up when Christ was killed on the cross of Calvary. What were those gates and what were those doors? Those gates and doors was a narrow way, and few there be that find it, that Christ mentioned in Matthew 7 verse 3. And then he revealed to be himself in John chapter 10, verse 9. I am the door, enter by me. The way of salvation was preceded by our sacrificial Savior. He went through the open gates. They opened for him because he was perfect and the law fulfiller. The ancient doors swung free on their hinges because our great conquering Messiah at the cost of his blood purchased their entry. And behind his victory train 
is everyone whose blood covers their sin. Amazing. The crucifixion was not just an act of humility and not just an act of sacrificial laying down of life. But as we read, as the narrative continues to unfold, we find it was the strongest and mightiest and most decisive victory that any man of war has ever waged successfully and will ever. If we have as our conquering general and hero, one who has defeated death itself, what else can assail us? If God be for us, who can be against us? If our conquering king can defeat death itself, how much more an incentive and inspiration have we to fill the streets with timbrels and praise as it were and say our conquering king has slain his ten millions where others have fallen into obscurity and indeed are judged as nothing less than nothing, a drop in the bucket, and are smashed by the rod of iron of our conquering Lord, there is no other salvation except in Jesus Christ. The gates and the ancient doors of salvation lift up, and those terms that have always been and always will be the perfection and righteousness that God requires, as denoted by that adjective ancient, have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and now we enter through those gates with him. And finally, we look forward to the day when the final chapter and the happy ever after of our story will be written and it will be the most amazing revelation that we have ever had even though we get a glimpse of something what it looks like in the future. And to bring this message to a close, I'll turn you to Revelation 11. At the consummation of history, Perhaps this is what we read of in verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 24 when we hear, lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. We turn over to Revelation chapter 11 and reading these two passages back to back fills us with joy and confidence and an expectation of faith and hope, one that cannot be destroyed by the worst day ever if we hang on to it as truth. In Revelation eleven fifteen, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And verse 16, the representatives of all the people of God, as I take the meaning here, and the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped him saying, we give thanks to the Lord God Almighty who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Who is the king of glory? Reading again from Psalm 24, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Then we read again in Revelation eleven eighteen: the nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. 
and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And notice verse 19, as this imagery is echoed, then God's temple in heaven was opened. The ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The gates of the temple of heaven were thrown open. The gates were lifted up. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, that the king of glory may come in. And there we see the perfect fulfillment of the presence of God, now experienced in greatest manifest degree by all who are represented by the 24 elders who sing in this victory parade, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who is worthy of praise? Our conquering king who has defeated death, hell, and the grave. We go back to the gospels and we ask ourselves this question even as we've done so in previous weeks. Why does Jesus do the miracles he does? And this is leading up to something. It's leading up to the cross, but it's also demonstrating something along the way. The authority of Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior, as perfect representative of lawkeeper, so that his death had the ability, the authority and power to pay for our sin was evident and demonstrated in the acts of Jesus Christ and in his ministry as he healed a woman that was caught with the issue of blood, as he forgave a man who had asked for healing of his legs being lame, and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. As he received homage and honor from a Roman centurion who said, I too am a man under authority. As he came upon a demoniac and proceeded to cast a legion of demons into a herd of swine, what do we find? We find evidence, irrefutable. That our Jesus Christ is Lord over demons, over political rulers, over sickness, over death, over hell, over the grave, over the guilt of sin, over even the religious leaders of the day, over the seas, the tumult, the chaos, the destruction, over temptation, over the weather. He stills the storm. He washes away sins. He commands that demons flee. He breaks the laws of physics Because he made them in the first place. He walks through walls. He walks on water. He overcomes. He rules over death, Satan himself, and all bow before his demonstrable lordship. Even when he was here and walking among us. Now imagine this day that we just read about. Imagine the praises that will come to your lips when your windpipe is regenerated when the new creation gives you a voice with the angels to echo the praises so deserving of our conquering Lord from glory to glory and without end we will praise him the God of creation and the God of new creation the author and the finisher the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end the definition and the source, the meaning and the goal, the purpose and the power to all of history. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, this plan that is unfolding before our eyes and ears as we read from the pages of Scripture and then we experience its effects in our own life can only be described as glorious and amazing beyond anything that we would dare to compare it with. 
You are incomparable. You are inscrutable. You are unsearchable. There is none beside you. So we simply say that you are, I am, you are, and you forever will be. We take refuge in your manifest glory. We take refuge in your promises. We take refuge in our experience of salvation and its gracious effects on our lives to preserve us, to equip us, to strengthen us, to sanctify, to embolden, but ultimately to save us. Something we could never do if we had a billion years. But our Lord Jesus Christ did in just a moment on the cross when he shed his sinless blood for our sin. Thank you, dear Heavenly Father, that your purposes are being fulfilled for all of history, even today. And we trust it won't be long when we will experience your glorious return and echo with the 24 elders, welcome, King of glory. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lift up your heads, O you gates, that the King of glory may come in. Until that day, I pray that we would faithfully serve with the boldness that picture gives us so we never waste a moment, if it were possible, and never waste a breath, Lord, to pause and consider that our God rules this earth and the heaven of heavens, and from glory to glory, He has has and will make His presence and power known, and we are so privileged to play a role in that. Thank you, Jesus, for these truths. Help them to be written, not just on our minds, but the tables of our hearts. In your name we pray, amen.